Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I'm going to apologise in advance if you can hear loads of noise of aeroplanes in the background because I live under the flight path for the Sunderland Air Show and that's going on today. So if you can suddenly hear like jets and typhoons and stuff, that's why. Anyway, welcome back. This is the start of our magical month and we're going to be looking at all things peculiar essentially. This week we are looking at witches' familiars, the good, the bad and the weird. Next week we're going to have a look at King James I and his demonology, which is part of the reason why there were witch hunts in the first place, and then we'll be having a look at Dr John Dee the week after. If there are any requests for the final week, because I haven't quite decided what we're going to do yet, feel free, as always, to just fling us an email and suggest something you'd like to learn more about. So as I say, we're going to look at familiars today. We've all seen the images of witches with their loyal cat or toad by their side. And these familiars usually help them cast spells or, in the case of Harry Potter, deliver the mail. I must admit, I always kind of quite like the idea of owl mail. That would be brilliant. But what are familiars and why are they so important to historical ideas around witchcraft? Obviously, when I say witchcraft, I'm not talking about the modern practice of it. I'm talking about how it was understood in a historical context, i.e. usually the 16th and 17th century. I'm not casting like shade on anybody here. So grab your nearest pet for company, get comfy and let's get cracking. So if we actually go way, way back, and I'm talking like back to like ancient Roman, ancient Greece, way before the witch panics of the medieval period, familiars were actually originally seen as a form of guardian angel and they're sometimes referred to as spirit guides. You'll probably have seen people on Facebook saying things like, ooh, my spirit animal is a wolf, or ooh, my spirit animal is a raven. And they always pick like this really badass animal, and I sort of think I'd quite like my spirit animal to be like, I don't know, an otter or something really awesome. So anyway, we'll have a look at ancient Rome. Households had the protection of spirits called tutelaries, which guarded homes and property, and they're a little bit like the genius loci, which I will come back to in a future episode because they're class. And in ancient Greece, there was a belief in the daemon, a personal spirit that guided a person's actions. And even Socrates talked about having one. Philip Pullman actually popularised this idea of the daemon in his series His Dark Materials. So if we then move forward, you get a book called The Picatrix, which is a Latin translation of an Arabic magical text. And it names a particular magician as being the first person to have a familiar. And this particular spirit performed miracles for him, basically taught him all about the secrets of the sciences and nature. And it also came when called when he made a sacrifice. Obviously, that's a little bit more problematic than just simply putting out a tin of biscuits. But anyway, if we then move forward to 1604, James I is basically, he's been on the throne for a year, having taken over from Queen Elizabeth I. And he introduces a new witchcraft act that included the occult rituals of diabolic witchcraft. And this is where you start to see the split between healing good magic and negative bad magic that's going to hurt people. And James I was absolutely crackers about witchcraft, but we'll get to that next week. But this this new act that came in basically made working with evil spirits a capital offence. 
And this act also references familiars, and in this act they're believed to be the witch's helpful demonic companions, which kind of makes them sound weirdly cute. The act also made an effort to clarify different types of witchcraft, and it turned out that communicating with spirits or practising magic with body parts both became capital offences, and the latter is very, very close to the divinatory practice of necromancy, which we'll cover in a future episode. Anyway, familiars. By the time we reach the witch hunts of the 17th century, these familiars are basically now considered to be imps, and they're often referred to as such, and they manifest as small animals, and a witch's power was basically completely embedded in this spirit, and their power could then pass to another person if they passed on the familiar. And Owen Davies points out the regional nature of the familiar because there are nearly no mentions in Wales and there's very few in Northern England, but the belief is really strong in East Anglia. And many of the accounts from this area come thanks to the activities of Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed witchfinder general, who you might have seen Vincent Price play in the film of the same name. And if you haven't seen it, it's brilliant. I highly recommend it. But in East Anglian folklore, witches either got their familiar direct from Satan as part of their pact for sort of saying, yes, I'll work for you, or they inherited them from someone else. And surprisingly, these imps actually still appear in court records in the area as late as the early 20th century. The weird thing is, though, that the familiars basically get smaller the way they're described until most people agree that they're basically white mice. So essentially, they're somebody's pets. And Owen Davies again points out that this extended engagement with the idea of familiars in East Anglia is probably because of the intensity of the witch hunting in the area and it's really imprinted itself on the popular consciousness. Now most people believed that familiars were evil spirits and people thought that they fed on the blood of their witch and acted as their servants. And some people think the word actually comes from famulus, a Latin word for servant. And this is where you'd often see in the testimonials that the investigators or witch finders or whoever were looking for the famed witch's mark, which was believed to be the teat where the familiar would suckle. So obviously if you have like a dodgy mole or even a freckle, people might decide that that was your witch's mark. Now apparently familiars in return for this blood used to teach witches actually how to do magic and they would also dispense advice. And witches could also use them as spies thanks to their shape-shifting abilities. And people started to suspect all kinds of animals, but largely things like cats, dogs, owls, toads or mice. People would also avoid hares. Like some people wouldn't even eat hares because they thought that they were either a witch's familiar or a witch in disguise. And the most famous hare familiar comes from the Pendle Trials. And there's one of the people accused, Elizabeth Demdike, talked about a character called Tib. And this particular familiar could be either a hare or a black cat. Now, during the Pendle Witch Trials as well, Alison Device claimed her familiar took the form of a black hound. And quite a lot of the stories talk, the witches talk about meeting the devil in his form as a black dog. And there's a blog post about black dogs on my website if you'd like to read more about black dogs. But the belief in familiars is actually really irrational because a lot of older people might quite obviously keep a pet for company or they might use them to keep down mice and rats. And anyone who's ever owned a cat knows how difficult it is to get them to do anything, making them a poor choice to carry out demonic chores. And there has also been suggestions that the mass slaughter of dogs and cats from people who believed they were familiars actually led to an increase in plague outbreaks because obviously the rodents didn't have anyone to keep them down. And there's basically a bit of a complicated relationship between the witch and the familiar because the familiar doesn't just do what it's told, it also makes requests in exchange for its magical help. 
And in Macbeth, a 1.1 of the three witches says, I come, Grimalkin. And Grimalkin's her familiar, a grey cat. And he's summoning her, not the other way around. And even royalty fell foul of suspicion of using familiars. So during the English Civil War, you had the parliamentarians on one side who basically wanted to be a republic. And then you had the cavaliers on the side of the royalists and the king. And the parliamentarians grew absolutely convinced that the royalist Prince Rupert's dog, this massive poodle called Boy, actually had supernatural powers. And according to the propaganda that was put about at the time, the dog was invincible, could find treasure, catch bullets in his mouth, and also issue prophecies. But unfortunately, someone shot the poodle at the Battle of Marsamoa in 1644. Obviously, I have called this this particular episode the good, the bad, and the weird, so the positive nature of witch familiars, because they weren't always only used for nefarious ends. They could actually find lost objects. I imagine dogs would be quite useful for this. And some witches also used them for divination purposes. And let's be honest, it's not that different from the psychic animals that often appear in the headlines whenever we'll have them predicting the outcome of something. And you might remember Paul the Octopus, who was apparently a psychic octopus who kept predicting the outcome of football matches during one of the World Cups a few years ago. And incidentally, familiars could also sniff out a bewitchment or diagnose a health problem. And weirdly, this was all considered above board and legal because the 1604 Witchcraft Act only persecuted evil spirits. So if you consulted a good spirit during sort of like looking at a difficult medical case, it wasn't exactly actively encouraged, but it was vaguely tolerated. And incidentally, considering people now use dogs to sniff out things like cancer, you know, who knows, maybe someone had a point. But this mention of spirits rather than familiars is quite critical because during the medieval period, familiars weren't physical animals, but there were spirits that took the form of these animals. So evil witches would use demons as familiars to cause harm, but good witches might use fairies or even angels in order to heal. It is actually quite easy to wonder how much these helpful familiars were accepted until a cure didn't work or a crop yield failed. But now we're going to get on to the weird. And cats, dogs and hares are the usual suspects, obviously. But other confessions actually reveal that people believed snakes, blackbirds, toads, beetles and even butterflies to be familiars. I can only assume somebody must have seen a butterfly out of butterfly season and freaked out. Anyway, there was a testimony of a child that a witch called Alice Hunt kept tiny horses as familiars and Hunt kept them in a pot by her bed and actually called them Robin and Jack. And obviously once the child had reported this, she even showed officials where Hunt kept the horses. Now, even though the horses weren't in this particular pot, Hunt was still convicted anyway. And tiny horses aside, all of these animals that get blamed for being familiars are all animals that you might expect to find in the European landscape. And, you know, these animals could pass unnoticed, which would obviously make them quite ideal for carrying out evil intentions. But you don't see people having things like bears or zebras as familiars because they would stand out too much. But even people could act as familiars. And Bessie Dunlop was tried for witchcraft in Scotland in 1576. And she described seeking advice from Tom Reed, an honest, well, elderly man. And in these cases, the human familiar could be a fairy, in which case they've got a whole other set of agendas going on, or there could be a ghost. And for these stories that involve ghosts, and there are a few, the familiars sought out the witch. 
And many of the confessions described accidental meetings. So you do have to wonder who's to say these witches weren't actually just mediums instead. And it all sounds a little bit more like the sixth sense at this point, that the ghosts are seeking out the humans to, to help them out. But in many cases, the witch wasn't actually actively seeking a servant when the familiar appeared. As I said earlier, sometimes they inherited the spirit from a dying parent. Other times the familiar turned up by accident. And some familiars only turned up when the witch was struggling with a magical matter. Many people believed that burning the familiars would destroy the witch's power. And there's a particular incident where a woman who was intended to be the next recipient of the familiars put them in the oven instead of keeping them. And there was another belief that a witch couldn't actually die until she'd found someone to pass the familiars on to. But we do have to remember that many of these confessions were obtained under torture. And the tiny horse testimony against Alicent came from a nine-year-old. So you do have to bear a lot of this in mind. But what we're going to make of all of this? We do have to remember that there are differences between our world and earlier societies. And in the early modern period, the physical world was quite harsh and everybody would believe in these invisible entities that would influence the world because it was an easier way to explain why somebody suddenly got ill or why you suddenly had crops failing or why storms would appear out of nowhere. There were a lot of weird weather events at this time of history as well. Where we, on the other hand, understand that life is random and quite often bizarre. And often science can explain a lot of the peculiar things that happen for us. And obviously we're a slightly more secular society, but obviously religious thought dominated theirs. And they weren't yet familiar with philosophical or scientific discourse. So it's much easier to grapple with, oh my God, what's this just happened? This just came out of the blue. It's easier to understand that by believing the old woman next door has a grudge against you than by going, it's just happenstance. And obviously, if she preferred the company of our pet to other people, so much easier to believe ill of her. But we also can't just blame ordinary people. And this talk of familiars among ordinary people only really comes about after they've actually appeared in court testimony and confessions. So you get a couple of them and then you suddenly get loads rather than there being loads and people then go and hang on a minute, this looks a bit odd. And Rita Voltmer actually points out that many of the more imaginative scenarios usually come from the fantasies of the interrogators, not from the accused, which could explain why there's regional variations, because interrogators would lead the suspects with what they're asking them based on what they'd read elsewhere. And also remember these confessions were often procured under torture. I mean, the things they would do to these poor people is absolutely horrific and like wouldn't be tolerated now. And one of the things they used to do, just as an example, is the captors would walk witches. And what that means is basically just walking them up and down, up and down, up and down for hours so that the witch couldn't find any rest. So obviously without sleep, they would end up exhausted. So they would obviously be more susceptible to just accept any accusation that was given their way. And when you get to the point where, you know, you've just lost all grip on reality, you would say anything. And it was also partly done to stop familiars from actually reaching them as well, because people thought, oh, if we leave them on their own, their familiar can come to them and can help. But if we're constantly with them, then they can't. But the alleged apparition of familiars could then also be used in evidence against them. So if you've been kept up without sleep for long enough and you're in this weird place, you don't know where you are, you don't know what's going on, you might start seeing your pet, which would be your sole source of comfort. You would, you might start hallucinating that, but then that would be used against you. Thankfully, however, familiars have taken on a much more positive aspect in popular culture. And just look at Harry Potter's Hedwig. I mean, I was in absolute bits with what happened to her in the Deathly Hallows 
I still can't forgive J.K. Rowling. I mean, I can't forgive J.K. Rowling for a lot of things, but I really can't forgive her for that. Or then look at Salem in the original Sabrina the Teenage Witch series. And in these cases, these loyal and trusted companions aren't actually evil spirits, but rather they're helpers or advisors in some ways. And if you do have a cat, honestly, try getting it to do your bidding and see what happens. So that is the end of this week's episode. It has gone on a little bit longer than the 15 minutes, but that's just because there's so much to cover when you'd look at anything to do with witchcraft. Obviously, I'm sick of all the negative films that are coming out at the moment where it's all like, ooh, ooh, look, evil, witches are evil, because you have to remember that this is coming out of essentially people are reading the discourse written by the victors, as it were, as in the witch finders and, and people like that, and then they're basically making something out of the wrong side of the historical record. But anyway, that's a digression for another time. As I say, next week we're going to look at King James I and his book Demonology, which kind of explains where a lot of this panic and hysteria came from. And then we're going to have a look at Dr John Dee, who I don't know why he hasn't had a film made about him yet the week after. So I hope you're looking forward to all of that. As ever, if you're interested in any of the things I've mentioned in this week's episode, then if you head to www.icsedgwick.com forward slash witches hyphen familiars, you can see images and all that jazz. Please feel free to drop me a comment, suggest anything you might like to hear about, or support me on Patreon. For a dollar a month, you can help me keep these shows going, and that will be fab. Thank you very much in advance. So, have a lovely week, whatever it is that you're doing, and I will see you soon. Cheerio! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!